0: Moncrief on News Talk.
1: Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.
0: Stuff that changed the world.
1: The mobile phone, the
0: internet changed the world.
1: Penicillin, I would have thought.
0: I would say sanitation. It changes everything. Simon Tierney joins us uh, once again to uh, talk. Well, actually. I suppose you could say that at one point, you know, n- nearly everybody had a calculator, but now people have phones that have calculators on them. So they don't even have calculators uh, anymore. But we are indeed talking about the calculator. Yeah.
1: Are you telling me you don't own a Casio calculator? I'm afraid I don't.
0: No. Um. Once not in
1: the breast pocket of your three piece that you're wearing? Not
0: not, not until, you know, once it started, it, it lost its power to attract women. Uh, and then I threw it away. <laughs>
1: That Women was, love uh, a man with multiple uh, devices. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like Dell Boy with the Filofax and the, filo little... fax and the B- <laughs> BMW key <laughs> ring. <laughs> uh, and a little pocket, pocket protector. Yes, <laughs> indeed.
0: The, yeah. It's, well, uh, it's a
1: funny thing. You're right, Sean, because, like, I certainly had it. I remember, um, was it, I think it was pre-junior Cert you weren't allowed to have a calculator. And then in the senior cycle, you were allowed to have a calculator. I think that was the big thing. And everyone couldn't wait until they got to fourth year when they could Mm. use a calculator, you know. And everyone had one. Yeah. In fact, my calculator was solar powered. It It had a solar thing at the top. And so long as you're in a place with daylight... It operated, so the batteries were powered, were, were recharged by the sun's energy. However, if you were caught in a predicament where you needed to make a calculation in the dark, oh, you were no. in trouble. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which often happens, uh, uh, really, that people need to uh, make a calculation in the dark. Um, so, uh, presumably... Well, I don't know, presumably. I, I, it's hard to imagine in history, in antiquity, what kind of contraption someone would come up with that might resemble a calculator.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it brings into question, well, what is a calculator? Um, a machine that calculates could be construed as an abacus. Mm. Um, uh, we'll all be familiar with an abacus from our Greek and Roman history, of course. And this comes from the... Um, the Greek word abax, which means calculating table, because it is like a table. And it's funny, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to talk about the abacus. But I suddenly realised, actually, I'm not really that sure how an abacus works. So I have to do a bit of research on it. And they are such wonderfully clever mechanisms, Sean, and they're beautiful in their simplicity. Um, A standard abacus, would have about 13 rows and the on each row, sorry, column, I should say, would have about 13 columns, which is separated into two rows by a wooden uh, barrier. And on those columns is a series of beads and the beads represent different numerical values, right? So the far right column would have five beads in the lower right hand corner. Mm. Each of those beads is worth a value of one. But in the top deck, so you've got the lower deck and the top deck. In the top deck, there's five beads, but they're worth the value of five each. And then when you go to the next column over to the left, then uh, they're not worth one anymore. They're worth 10. So if you've got five, then you've got 50. And it's about accumulation. And interestingly... The history of the calculator, of the mechanical calculator, as opposed to the electronic one, which we use in the second half of the 20th century, is that calculators are all about the process of, a commu- of accumulation. And it's about different finding different and more effective ways to accumulate numbers and to give different relative values to to different signifiers. Crikey. If that uh, makes any uh, sense.
0: because it's far more complicated than I thought.
1: They are complicated, yeah. but when you start, when you get the hang of them, they are really, really useful things. Now, I should say, the reason we're talking about the calculator today is because, I don't know about you, Sean, but <laughs> I am celebrating the 50th anniversary of the world's first pocket-sized scientific calculator. Wow. Big month. Big month. Big month. <laughs> uh- so what is this? This was the HP 35, which which is an incredible um, machine, Sean. I tweeted, I actually I tweeted an advertisement, a contemporary advertisement for this device a little earlier today. If listeners want to see it, and um, it's really interesting in the ad, and it gives you a sense of how quick, how fast we've evolved in this particular technology, is that the ad it shows. Very identifiable to you and me and everyone else as a calculator. A bit thicker, a bit heavier looking, a Mm. bit more basic. But it was the world's first calculator that was handheld, but that could do more than the basic functions of a calculator. So the basic, the four basics are addition, subtraction, multiplication and division. Mm. Now, if you wanted a calculator to do more than that, what would be more than that would be trigonometry, algebra, etc.? You would pay for, this is pre-1972, right? In 1971, if you wanted to buy a calculator that could do trigonometry, it would cost you the same as a Nissan Micra. Yeah. Right? It was very, very expensive and it would take up most of the space in this studio. These were huge calculating machines. So what Hewlett-Packard, in particular Bill Hewlett of HP fame, what he did against the advice of his market researchers who told him, actually, Bill, no one wants your tiny little calculating machine. Mm -hmm. He said, well, I think they might actually. And he was right. And... They were so popular, even though they cost three hundred and ninety-five dollars. Wow, Sean, that's three hundred and ninety-five dollars fifty years ago. Yeah, which would be about two thousand six hundred dollars today for for a tiny little calculator, right? So these were very, very expensive, but. Anyone who worked in the engineering fields, the science fields, the mathematics fields wanted one of these. And even um, General Motor uh, sorry, General Electric, they immediately placed an order for 20,000. Of these things, which is which is amazing.
0: Okay, so. that is extraordinary. So, uh, so going back to the abacus again, was yeah. there anything that predated the abacus?
1: Yeah, so there was the counting board or the counting tablet. Um, I hadn't come across this before, but there's a beautiful example of one um, in uh, in in Italy that was discovered uh, in the ni- mid nineteenth century, and this is basically a stone slab with markings on it. And by cross-referencing those numbers uh, and the graphs on it, you were able to, to make calculations. It was basically a proto-abacus. But the abacus um, changed everything. It's ancient, of course. Um, it goes back to 2000, 2500 BC in both ancient Sumeria which the Sumerians, of course, invented the wheel and the abacus um, in Mesopotamia and uh, ancient Egypt as well. They used them before they transferred to Greece and ancient Rome and all the rest. Then we've got a really big jump, really, as we often do uh, when we talk about ancient technology on this slot. Is The next really big movement for me the way I understand it, is the 1640s in France. We have a gentleman by the name of Blaise Pascal who invented, I suppose, one of the first mechanical calculators. Mm. It's still nothing identifiable to us or recognisable, I should say, to us nowadays. How would I even begin to describe this? Okay, so... The pascaline, as he called it. This is an incredibly beautiful piece of technology. It's about the size of a shoebox, Sean, and oh. that sort of shape. And on the front of it, it has three or four what I would describe as clock faces. And these clock faces related to each other. So a bit like the um, the abacus where you begin with one column and that has a numerical effect on the next column with this pascaline machine if you turn the first um, uh, the first clock face there are a series of teeth that carry the decimal onto the next clock face so if the first clock face is one to ten with a numerical value of one each then when you get to the end of that by drawing it like a rotary phone Sean if you remember the old rotary phones you use your finger and you draw it all the way around to get to number one, um, if you if you do a full turn on that first clock face, uh, a tooth catches and carries the decimal over to the next clock face. So you're you're carrying the value over to the next right to yeah. the next one, and that'll have a value of ten, if you know what I mean. So it's like a mechanical abacus in a way, but it was able to do calculations, and it was very very. Uh, it had a profound influence. On, I suppose it it had a profound influence on a race to find a better machine. People realised that the Pascaline wasn't necessarily the answer that they were looking for, but they realised that there was a potential and a future solution to be found. If that makes sense, yeah, because
0: I do remember we did we did an item on them ages ago. Where there was a fellow called Charles Babbage, who, and this was the eighteen hundreds, but he, and, and it, I suppose a lot of people say it was like the first um, computer but he was given thousands to come to build this thing that he called a difference engine which is just a really cool name and it was Byron's daughter helped him. Who was a mathematician who helped him worked on it. Wow! Uh, but they never built it because uh, they never completed. They made a model of it, but never completed the whole thing. And I think the king or whoever was funding it eventually got fed up.
1: Yeah, well, likewise with Pascal, there was only fifty iterations of his machine, and none of them are really the same. He was constantly trying to perfect it, and he never really did fully. But I suppose, in a way, um, our modern understanding of the calculator and what it can do is very much uh, something that's born out of the mid 20th century, the post war period, when that's a period that pops up on this slot all the time. And there's a reason for that. There's two reasons. In fact, first of all, we see um, a massive kind of uh, uh, civilian benefit that we get from any wartime in terms of technology. Mm. Um, there's always a a huge increase in scientific and technological knowledge um, because the military have spent so much on developing weapons and then um, we get a kind of a, a a deficit afterwards so there was a, an austrian gentleman by the name of kurt herzstark and he invented the first handheld modern calculator in 1948 okay so this is about 20 years before the hp 35 which i mentioned mentioned a few moments ago and kurt herzstark is a really interesting man because he was developing his machine in the late 1930s, when, of course, the Angelus took place—not the Angelus, the mm. Angelus took place—which uh, was when Hitler annexed Austria into the Third Reich, and um, he was the son of a Jew. And in 1943, he was arrested, and I'll give you—I'll tell you exactly why he was arrested. "Quote unquote," for helping Jews and subversive elements was the first. Uh, accusation against him and the second accusation was for indecent contacts with Aryan women because he was considered of Jewish blood. Now he had been developing this really important piece of technology this prototype handheld um, calculator. The first time such a thing had ever existed and he was put into Buchenwald concentration camp and he had to pause his his work but he secretly continued to do it while he was there the nazis soon realized that he was a scientist of some repute and they put him to work on the v2 rocket program oh yeah but um this what happened was he talked about this much later in his life after the war was that one particular Nazi officer discovered his drawings for his calculator and told him that if you can do this, if you can produce a handheld computer that is able to calculate uh, mathematical sums, we will give this as a gift to the Third Reich, to Hitler, and you will become a true Aryan. And... uh, By the time the war finished, very soon afterwards, because he was only arrested in 1943, he was able to then fulfil his ambitions with this and it became the first mass-produced calculator in history. There was over 150,000 of these calculators produced. It was a huge success for him. But I was showing pictures of this to some of my family yesterday and if if you saw a picture of this, you would never believe that it was a calculator the first thing i thought of when i saw a photograph of the Curta, it was called mm. after its inventor c u r t a is to me it looks like um, a zoom lens of That's a, like SLR a grenade. camera yeah or a <laughs> grenade yeah, yeah. Uh, and it evaporate. has the pin on the top, the the, the mm-hmm. ring pull on the top. Or some people say it looks like a pepper grinder. So all those lovely things wrapped into one and you get a sense of what this thing looked like. But it was very much based on the slide rule. And um, our older listeners who worked in engineering will know what a slide rule was. A slide rule mm. was basically a big fancy trigonometric ruler that... Um, That engineers used before the calculator came along and I think they did use it right up until not so long ago, traditionalists at least, which was uh, which allowed you to cross-reference lots of complicated numbers and this worked on the same principle so you twisted this cylindrical object until you got the number combinations that you wanted then you clicked a button and it calculated them for you using all these levers and slides and a hand crank at the top, which people that's why people call it like a, a pepper mill, because yes, in order yeah. to do the, the computation you had to twist this uh this hand crank at the top.
0: That's a very clever design though.
1: It's a very clever design and a beautiful object as well. Um I'm not sure if there's many left. Now again Sean that was expensive. It was $125 um, in 1948, when it first went on the market, that would be about 1,441 dollars in today's money. So this isn't something that you're picking up for your mm. your kids' junior cert maths yes. class. Do you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> but presumably, though, when uh, electronics made the calculator much well, I know easier to build, but much more efficient, rather than all the fiddly bits that the previous iterations needed.
1: Yeah, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there because almost everything we've talked about so far here, apart from the HP 35 in 1972, they're all mechanical. None of them are electronic. Even the Kurta is mechanical. Um, so yeah, everything changes in 1967, Sean. So five years before the HP 35, there's a machine that's developed by... Um, a scientist called Jerry Merriman who worked for an American company called Texas Instruments and he developed the world's first electronic handheld calculator. You'll notice that I haven't really spoken much about the enormous calculator machines because mm. they're computers, really. Yeah, yeah. What we're talking about here is small handheld devices. And um, so he was the first to produce. So that the first electronic calculator that was handheld was 1967. It was called the Caltech, no relation to California Technological University. And it weighed one kilogramme. It was still advertised as handheld. <laughs> <laughs> One kilogram. Massive hands. Yeah, you'd <laughs> yes, employ somebody to carry it for you. <laughs> <hands>. <laughs> but it was still described as a pocket calculator, which could completely weigh you down. Um, but what I love about this device, Sean, I really love this because for me, this device, the Caltech, gives gives us a really brilliant historical insight into the difficulty that these early electronic Convenience devices had with kind of marrying the idea of okay, things are electric and digital now, but we also are very fond of things being on paper. Mm. So we're at a crossroads here of civilization. And where do we go from here? Because when you'd finished your calculation, um, the result did not come up on the screen. You had to press a little button and it printed out the result for you on a tiny, tiny little. Um, strip of paper at the very top and that came out and you would you'd pull it off and then you had your your answer so it's a really interesting kind of device because it, it shows that they were very much at a technological crossroads they were like okay people want you know they want the answer on paper you know they don't want it in a machine
0: mm. Uh, Someone's sectioning to say, I was in Moscow for three weeks in 1980. Abacuses everywhere in shops, used by shop assistants to calculate all transactions. It was incredibly fast and efficient. I suppose if you kind of know what you're doing, uh, that would be the case. Uh, Jenny says, Byron's daughter was Ada Lovelace, a mathematician in her own right. It's a shame when female scientists are referred to through their male relations. Well, I, I, I understand. I wasn't. Byron's wife, also a mathematician, that's where Ada Lovelace got it from. Uh, Porrick says uh, that she, she was, uh, Ada Lovelace is generally thought of as the first programmer, was known as the princess of parallelograms. That's a
1: That's
0: hi. a great title. That's, yeah, that sounds like in the name of somebody's album. Uh, Simon, thanks a million. As ever, uh, fascinating there about the history of, of the calculator. Uh, speaking of calculators, let's remind you how much is in the cash machine.